Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, draw near this day to us as we have heard Your Word. Enlighten our hearts and our minds and renew us. Grant us to have this Word planted deep within us and for Your Spirit to be active, to direct, to direct our paths, to lead our ways, and to keep our feet from slipping that we might walk ever forward in the transformed life that You have given to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I first became Anglican, something I didn't realize was that this Sunday, Christ the King Sunday, was a relatively new day on the church calendar. In fact, it wasn't added to the church calendar until the 1920s. And at that time, it was added onto the calendar to be the last Sunday in October instead of the last Sunday of the church year. See, the original thinking was to connect Christ the King to All Saints Day. That you have this celebration of Christ as King over all the saints, over all of His people. And then the next Sunday, you're remembering all the saints. Or, the ne- or then the next... <laughs> And then just a few days later, not necessarily the next Sunday, but a few days later, All Saints Day would happen, and you would remember all the saints and recall God's great works through Jesus Christ for His people and the way that that built up His people and sent them forth. But then in the 60s, there came a shift, a shifting from that last Sunday in October to the last Sunday of the church year in order to bring out something that isn't always brought out very clearly throughout the readings that we hear throughout our lectionary. And that was to emphasize that eschatological nature of Christ's kingship. To emphasize that end times aspect. That future kingship of Christ, so to speak. That He is king now, yes, but most of the world does not recognize that kingship. And so the church chose to shift that Sunday to the end of the church calendar in order to emphasize the reality of Christ's kingship over all and the fact that He will come and judge all nations. He will come and judge all peoples. And those who are found in Christ will be with Him forever. And this works well too. I enjoy that picture of Christ the King connected to all saints, but I also especially enjoy this picture of Christ the King coming in judgment connected to the beginning of the church year. For where do we go at the beginning of the church year? We go to the first Sunday of Advent, which has often been focused on that return of Christ and all things being renewed, all things being taken and turned over and shaken out, and that which is wicked being removed, that Christ returns triumphant, that we begin Advent with a focus on His second return, on His second coming. Just as I at the end of the church year, We emphasize Christ's return as King to judge all things. And so it's a neat way of how it connects together that we move from the end of the church year right into the beginning of the new church year. That those two Sundays become intertwined with one another, focusing on that return of Christ. For Advent is not merely about Christ's first coming, us preparing to celebrate Him at Christmas, but it's about our hearts being prepared for His return. 
to rule over this world, His return to make all things fully new, to bring about the full consummation of His work. Advent recognizes both sides of that equation of Christ. That He once came so long in the past, born in Bethlehem as a man, in order that He would then grow up and die for our sins. That He would go to the cross to receive the judgment that we rightly deserve. For He had to become man to do that. But after His ascension, we await. We wait patiently for that final coming when He will come and purify all of us. When He will come and remove the very nature of sin from our bodies, not just our souls, but from our very bodies, and death will no longer have sway over us. For as we heard in 1 Corinthians 15, that when Christ returns, the final enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And so in all of this, as we think about Christ's return, His purifying His people, the final judgment, Him separating the sheep from the goats, And that final judgment, what truly matters is Jesus Himself. Our focus should be on Jesus Himself and our disposition toward Him. Our turning toward Him. Because the final judgment isn't about us. It's about Jesus Himself. And I hope that this picture of the judgment can become an encouragement to us. And not something that leaves us in fear of not measuring up to what God calls us to do. And so we see here in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, of the Son of Man coming in His glory with all of His angels with Him and Him sitting upon His throne. What I love is how our passages today are interlocked with one another. Then in Ezekiel 34, we hear of God judging His people, of Him separating the fat sheep from the lean sheep, the goats from the sheep, the rams from the he-goats, Etc. That He's working to separate His people and He will bring judgment upon them. He will save those who have been abused and maltreated by those who are well off. And in that picture, I believe, is a picture of God judging Israel herself. That it's God judging His people, separating those who have been ones who turned to the covenant and trusted in God's promises over against those who were covenant breakers. Those who were the promise breakers. Those who refused to submit to God's promises. To submit to His law. That He will separate them. And that Jesus has that in the back of His mind, I think. As He's telling this story. Telling this, giving us this description of the final judgment. But the other thing I really love about Ezekiel 34 as I, as I was reading it this week is the reverse side of Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, we hear about the good shepherd from the sheep's perspective. That the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down beside still waters. He leads me into the grasses where I might eat. It's all about the sheep looking to the shepherd and what he is doing for them. In Ezekiel 34, those first few verses that we heard this morning are focused on on a very similar picture, but it is from the shepherd's perspective. It is from God's perspective of Him saying, I am going to go get my sheep. I am going to gather them and take them up to my mountain where I will feed them, where I will give them rest, where I will comfort them. I will gather my sheep to myself and be their good shepherd. 
And I want us to hear that, that it is God who is acting in both of these scenes. In Ezekiel 34, God gathers His sheep. And here in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in all of His glory with all of His angels with Him and sits upon His glorious throne, He then begins acting. All of these actions in verse 31 and 32 are about Jesus. The Son of Man comes. He sits on His throne. And then the sheep and the goats are gathered. All the nations are gathered. The nations don't just willingly come to Him, but the Son brings them to Himself. Whether it's Him directly doing it or His angels that are there with Him. Either way, if it's His angels, they're acting on His behalf to bring His people as it speaks of them doing in other passages. But the people are gathered. It is something being done to them. And then the Son separates the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then He places one set on His right and one set on His left. And then He speaks. The entire beginning of this passage is driven by the actions of Jesus. We don't drive the action. Jesus does. And it's important that we remember that as we look through this text. As we remember that Jesus is the driver. He is the one in control. He is the one doing. And that is what ultimately matters. Just stop and just rest in that for a moment that Jesus is the actor. We are the ones who are acted upon. And that in the end, what matters is that Jesus Himself is in charge. He's in control. And we are the recipients of what He is doing always and forever. His work is for us. And we are those who receive that work. We are not the ones who drive that work. And so, the King speaks. He looks to these sheep And he says, come. He commands them to come to him. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Again, here, it's already being set up. So often we read this passage because Jesus then goes on to say, for I was hungry and you gave. For I was this and you gave. For I was this and you welcomed. We hear and get so caught up on the actions of the sheep. But here in verse 34 Jesus says, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The foundation of this entire passage is the work of God in Jesus Christ. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit. We don't do anything to get an inheritance. When we look at the Old Testament, God continually speaks of the inheritance for His people. And what kind of people were His people? There were a bunch of lawbreakers. There were a bunch of people who constantly did wrong, who were in constant need of forgiveness, who were in constant need of mercy. And if not for the steadfast love of Jesus Christ, of the steadfast love of their covenant God, Yahweh, they would have been wiped from the face of the earth. But God continually said that they had an inheritance, that He would give to them an inheritance. And hear what kind of inheritance it is that these sheep receive. They receive the kingdom which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Before any of them existed, this kingdom was already ready for them to inherit. It was already planned for them to inherit it. And God called them forth into that inheritance. 
And yes, He does say after that, For I was hungry, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was thirsty, for I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. One thing I've had to realize is that for does not mean because of or on account of. It's not being used in this causal sense. Jesus isn't saying, come and get the kingdom because you've done these good deeds. He's not saying the basis of your inheritance are these good deeds you've done, but He's using it, these things as evidence of the work of God and Jesus Christ in them and through them. That they have been blessed by the Father previously. And that blessing is what has led to them giving, has led to them persevering, has led to them clothing and visiting and coming to those in need. Again, Jesus is driving the actions. The kingdom is given to these people because it pleases the Father to bless them and out of that blessing they respond and they react and they do the good deeds that God has called them to do. The good deeds are not the foundation and the cause Jesus is. The Son is. The King is the foundation of all of their salvation. All of their good deeds are founded upon who the King is and what He has done. And it says here that the righteous will answer saying, when, when did we do that? When did we do any of these good deeds that you're talking about? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, the works that we do as believers for those who come before us, especially for the brothers and sisters of the, in the faith, as we serve them, just as they are united to Christ and we are united to Christ, it is as though we are serving Christ Himself, for He is so bound up with His people. And we see the same thing in Acts 9 when the Lord Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus. And he says, you are persecuting me. And Saul says, when, when have I done that? And he says, you are persecuting my people, therefore you have persecuted me myself. Myself has been persecuted by you and you're attacking my believers. And you're attacking my chosen ones. And so all of these good deeds done for those around us are done for Jesus Himself. He is receiving our good deeds as we act and do the things He has called us to do, we are doing them directly to Jesus Himself because He is united to His people. Now, I think one of the beautiful encouragements that we can have in this passage is look at the simple deeds that they did. We think of great deeds of the faith being someone like Billy Graham going out and preaching to millions and millions and millions of people and seeing so many convert. Or we think of great missionaries going throughout the world and doing Amazing things, converting thousands and tens of thousands of people throughout their ministries. We think of people with great healing powers in the New Testament, going out and healing the sick like Peter and Paul did. But here, these sheep are commended for their simple good deeds, their everyday good deeds. These things that they stumble upon throughout their daily lives in the midst of their very vocations of living as Christian folk, they accomplish the work of God in Jesus Christ. For how easy is it to, find, to encounter a hungry person and to simply give food? 
to encounter a thirsty person and give them drink. Rachel and I do that literally every day for our kids. We literally encounter those who are hungry and those who are thirsty and we care for them in our daily lives. We help to clothe them throughout their days. When they're sick, we visit and care for them. When they're in prison, hopefully not in the future, but figuratively speaking, maybe, we'll visit them. And likewise, so many of you too are doing these very things in your families. And you do these very things for the friends around you. You do these very things for those you encounter each and every day. These are the simple good deeds of faith that should flow out of faith. That should quickly spring forth as faith causes you to love God more and to love Christ for they have loved you. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have poured love into your heart and it overflows out through the foundation of your faith, going out to those all around you. And these are simple good deeds of encouragement for us to realize that we can accomplish these things simply by being Christians, by pursuing Jesus and following after Him in everything that He does. And then we hear of what happens to the goats. And the king says to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who are goats in the end, those who have not trusted in Christ, those who have not looked to that foundation of the work of Christ and His promises for us, who have clung to the idea that they are the truth tellers, that they are the righteous ones in and of themselves, the Lord looks to them and says, Depart from me, you cursed. Depart from me, you wicked ones, and go into that eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The one thing that in more recent years that I've continually walked away from in reading that passage is that phrase, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell itself, that final death, that final condemnation was not intended originally to be for humanity. Humanity and Adam and Eve were to be in relation with the Father. But the devil and his angels had rebelled and God had prepared a place for them of separation, of punishment, of removal from His gracious and loving presence because of their rebellion, because they rejected His goodness and chose to pursue that which was their own thinking. That fire of hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for humanity. But because of humanity's fall, those who reject The work of God in Christ for them. Those who reject the work of Christ. Those who remain sinful and refuse to see their sin. They will end up in that same place at the end. They will be condemned with the devil. They will be condemned with his wicked angels. For they do not act out of faith and love. For they only act out of selfish intentions at the end of the day. They don't act out of love for God. They may love and care for their neighbors. They may love and care for those around them. They may love and care for their families. But that love is not founded upon the love that overflows out of the heart of believers. That love that is poured into us Christians. It is a kind of love, but it is not the kind of love that God calls for. It is not a purified and holy love that is created in us when we turn in faith. And cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. These are the ones who refuse to accept mercy. These are the ones who refuse to accept 
the steadfast love of God in Christ for them. These are the ones to whom God says, Your will be done. You have chosen to want nothing to do with me. You have rejected the grace that is offered. You have rejected the salvation that is accomplished in Christ. And so I will leave you. And I will cast you into that place that was made for the devil and his angels. Because you have ignored the great need. You have ignored the Lord and His need through His people. For when, the Lord, when I was hungry, you gave me no food, Jesus says. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me, He says. And they likewise will be shocked by such a statement. When did, when did we ever see you, Lord? When did we see you, Jesus? And He'll say... As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. As they ignored the calling of the Lord, as they ignored His calling to confess their sins and to turn to Him in His mercy and to be changed and renewed in order that they might then do the good works that flow out of faith. They are rejected. As they reject the Son, so the Son will reject them. And these, Jesus says, will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. I appreciate that the ESV has translated that word eternal in both spots, eternal punishment and eternal life. Some translations will use different words for those in English, but it's the same word in Greek. And it's rightly translated as eternal. It's rightly translated as everlasting in other places, but here I think it's a depth of a deep importance that the same English word is used where the same Greek word occurs. For this Greek word is describing punishment and it is describing life. And it's the same word so close together that they must mean the exact same thing. There are many in more recent years who have tried to say, oh, well, that Greek word that we translate as eternal does not always mean a literal, never-ending frame of time. It just means an age, a large sum of time. And so therefore this punishment can be construed as just a punishment for a long time and then maybe these souls and these people cease to exist or maybe they are ultimately redeemed in some way. But the logic of that would then have to say that the righteous only enter into life that lasts for a long time, but not forever. It's a life that they might have for a period of time and then they too just simply cease to exist. You can't have both sides of that. It's either eternal means forever in this passage, or eternal simply means a long period of time that eventually comes to an end, which means that not only does punishment come to an end, but life comes to an end. But that is not the promise that God has given us about life. He has told us that we have eternal life, we have unending life, we have a full and ever forward going life in Jesus Christ. Which must mean in this very passage that there is a punishment that never ends. There is a separation that never ends. There is a removal from the kind and gracious presence of God the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit that lasts for eternity. And that is something we as believers wrestle with. But nonetheless, it is what is written. That those who reject Christ, those who refuse His mercy will be removed from that merciful presence in the end. But note that word, in the end. Where we are right now is not the end. We do not know when that end will come. 
So therefore, knowing is sealed in our time frame, so to speak. Those that we know who have not yet believed, we can continue to preach to them. We can continue to show them goodness. We can continue to reveal to them the mercy of the Lord toward them in Jesus Christ. We can continue to proclaim the gospel before them and do good deeds toward them. Fulfilling our vocations toward them. And praying for God to work through those things to implant in them that work of Christ. To implant into them that faith. Because the end is not yet here. That they too in the end, when that time comes, will be found to be amongst the sheep. That they will be founded as those who have founded their lives upon Jesus Christ. Whose disposition is toward Him. Whose love is for Him. Whose trust is based solely upon Him and His work. Not their own. And what of this eternal life that we receive? The eternal life that we receive is founded in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul describes this beautiful picture of the resurrection that Christ has been raised from the dead, and thus he is the first fruit, he is the first harvest. And then others who are in him will also be resurrected into that new kind of life. Because death came by one man. As I said earlier, hell was not intended for humanity. Mankind originally in Adam and Eve were to be in a perfect relationship with the Father, with the Son and the Holy Spirit. But Adam fell. Adam chose sin. Adam chose his way over God's way. And thus all of mankind became corrupted and separated from God. And so death came into this world because of what Adam did. But because one man committed a sin that condemned all, God sent another man, Jesus Christ, To bring salvation to all who are found to be in Him. That the resurrection of the dead comes by a single man. In Adam all die, so also in Christ. In Christ all shall be made alive. That all of those who are found to be in Christ will be given new life. And that is an eternal life and in the end resurrected into perfect bodies where sin has been purged and removed. Because the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. And that is our encouragement as we are looking toward this final day and remembering that there is a final judgment to come. That it is all based on the work of Jesus Christ. That final judgment isn't about us and our good deeds. The final judgment is really about Jesus and His good deeds for us that have been planted in us that then show up as good deeds toward others. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the saints entering into heaven and their good deeds following after them. That is the picture, I think, here in Matthew 25. That the saints are there before the seat of God, before the seat of Jesus, Him on His glorious throne. And He commends them for the good deeds they've done. And and they say, "What, what are you talking about? What good deeds? All we have seen is sin. All we have been able to do is confess our sinfulness as you... As we strove, strove to, dry, to draw nearer to you, as we strove to get closer to you, we could feel and sense more and more of our own personal unholiness. And we were driven to confess it, that we might know you more deeply. And Jesus says, yes, that is right, but in the midst of all of that, you have an abundance of good deeds that you accomplish because you desire to fulfill the callings I gave to you. And those good deeds have followed you into heaven. Those good deeds have followed after you and I am commending you for that work that you accomplished 
when I worked through you. That you wouldn't have done those things without me working in you, but nonetheless it is you who did them with the power and the strength of myself. And that is our encouragement. That is our building up this day is that the good deeds we do are done by Jesus. That He has called us into those good deeds. And He will accomplish them through us. And that that judgment isn't about those good deeds. It is about Jesus. And that we will be found in Jesus by walking in faith. By trusting His work. By looking and saying, Jesus, You are the truth teller. And I am the truth denier. In myself, I have rejected You. But thanks be to God for You. For You have redeemed me. You have poured Your Spirit into me and renewed my heart that it might actually trust You. You have renewed my heart that it might actually love You. You have accomplished all for me. And so I must give You the glory and the judgment. I must give You the praise and the thanksgiving. I must give You the honor. For You have redeemed me and not the other way around. You are the Redeemer. And I am the one who is merely a recipient who receives it with joy because You transformed me into a person who can receive. And so rejoice this day, my brothers and sisters, for while we look toward Christ's coming in judgment, we don't fear that judgment. We look to Christ coming in judgment with joy because it is about Him. It is about His work for us. And we can cling to that work always and forever. We can cling to that work every day of our lives. No matter how hard it gets, we can cling to the work of Jesus and continually be renewed by Him. And in the end, He will see our good works following us into heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.